Let's look in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 and the last half of this passage of Scripture, the last portion. This is page 822 if you're using those black Bibles around you. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read verses, we're going to focus our time on verses 21 to 28, but I'm actually going to read starting in verse 13. Um, The reason is because today's message is kind of part two of a two-part section that really seems to be put together as uh, two stories side by side. I'd like us to see that afresh as we read through it. If you've ever tried to cut your own hair in a mirror or trim your beard, which I need to probably do, it's been a while, it takes sustained mental effort to do ordinary activities because of the backwards reflection. Everything that you're doing in a mirror needs to be done in the opposite direction. So you're trying to trim this way, but you're actually going the other way, and it's challenging. This text is just like that. What Jesus is going to tell us is like looking into a mirror and with sustained mental effort, with persevering fatigue, we're going to get tired and give up. We're not going to want to do this. This is one of the teachings of Jesus that we don't like. It's one of the things that challenges us and confronts us. And so I want to acknowledge before we even read this text that it's going to be hard for a lot of us to really do it. Not hard to understand it. There's a lot of times in the Bible where you get to a passage you're like, what is this even saying, you know? And then there's times where it's like, yeah, I know what that's saying, but that's hard to do. That's going to take repetition of commitment of doing it again and again because it's doing everything backwards. If you've ever done anything for a sustained period of time and then tried to redo all of that. I told my wife recently that when I was playing basketball early in my life, I learned how to shoot a basketball inappropriately and somebody said, the way you shoot a basketball looks bad. It's dumb. Like, you have terrible shooting form. And I felt like, really? What does that even mean? And so then I I Googled it, you know, and I learned how to shoot a basketball on the internet. Thank you, Google, right? Because that paid for my college education, you know? And so I then had to rethink how I did everything with a basketball. And it took kind of simplifying things, starting with the very basics, and I had to sit right under the hoop and kind of go over and over again with the shortest, simplest little shots. And then I could finally play basketball again the right way. For a lot of us, that's what it's like to be confronted with this teaching. It is doing everything backwards, and you're going to have to start from the very beginning, and everything in your life should be on the table in terms of its inventory of, am I really doing this the way Jesus is leading me to, if I want to follow him? So let's read the text, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Last week we covered verses 13 to 20. But I hope that as we read it, I'll point them out as we go along, but I hope even as we just read it, you'll notice, wow, this is something for Matthew to compile a biography of Jesus and put these two stories next to each other. Follow along as I read. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. End of story number one. Story number two. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Last week's big idea in verses 13 to 20, the passage that we started reading, the story unit number one, if you were to summarize it very simply, it is answering the question of who. And the phrase in terms of the big idea last week was, when you know who Jesus is, then you will know who you are. It's answering the question of who. Who's Jesus? And in light of who Jesus is, who are you? Who are we, the church? That was last week's big idea, the question of who. This week's big idea is the question of what or how. We've already solidified by looking at the text from last week who Jesus is. And what was the short answer? If you were to sum it all up, Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the answer in short is, he's the king. Not a king, the king. The king of kings. The lord of lords. The ruler over all. He is not just any king. He is a human king and he is a God-man king. The one king that all of the nation of Israel was waiting and longing for through all of the promises were pointing to the greater David the greater Solomon, he's that king. And so they acknowledge this, they determine who he is, and on the basis of that, we find out who the church is, who Peter is. 
He's the first one to confess that Jesus is the king, and therefore, he says that you are a rock. And notice the way Jesus praises him for this. Blessed are you. Well done. Good job. That was the right answer. This was good. He said, you didn't even know this because of your own human intuition and figure this out. Like, in fact, God had to reveal this to you for you to understand that I am the king. And so he gives Peter this amazing commendation, this amazing word of affirmation for his answer and tells him that he is the rock to which he will place more and more rocks, he being the cornerstone, and build the temple of his church and nothing can stop it. That's who the church is. An unstoppable assembly that not even death will slow down. That's fantastic, right? That's good. But then you read this next story. Did you guys catch it? The parallels. Peter, you are the rock. Next story. Peter, you are Satan. Like, whoa, whoa, this is crazy. Peter, you are the rock. Notice the word where it says, you're a hindrance. It's the word, you're a stumbling rock. It's a play on words. You're the rock, I'm going to build my church. Next scene, Peter, you're the rock that's going to trip me down. I mean, wow. What a way to tell a story. And so what I want us to do is work through the second story. And I want us to just think through how would they have heard this story first? Because I think this is one of those passages that if you hear it over and over again in Christian life, you might get like, yeah, 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 I've heard that. But always go to the Bible in its original context. Think about the way they would have heard it in their context. Make sense of it in their world. And then we'll apply it to our world. And then hopefully you will see how it oozes with application for how we live our everyday lives And so let's start with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. The first phrase tells us that there is a change happening in the grand story of the whole 28 chapters of Matthew. Here in chapter 16, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Prior to that, he has been north of Jerusalem in the area of Galilee, And it is just outside of the town where he grew up in Nazareth. So smaller community, fishing community. He's got a bunch of fishermen and other folks with him, tax collectors, a couple, a zealot. You know, he's got this ragtag group of disciples with him. And so now he is showing them that he is on his way and he must. This is not just a must of like, yeah, I need to go. It is By divine will, this is the plan of God. He must go to Jerusalem and do what? Suffer. Suffer a lot of things. Suffer a lot of things from the established Jewish leadership. That phrase there for elders, chief priests, and scribes kind of summarizes what is called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would have been like your supreme court in the Jewish court of law. They would have been the top dogs to make decisions about matters of being a Jew in the community. So he's saying, we need to go to Jerusalem. We have to. It's God's will. So we're headed there. 
and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer a lot, many things. And the many is probably referring to the whole week of the passion, the rejection, the abandonment from the disciples, the slaps in the face, eventually leading to what he makes explicit here, and die. Be killed. And then on the third day, be raised. Peter speaks up as he does in the previous story, story number one. I think he's speaking up as he did in story number one on behalf of the rest of the disciples because if you get in the mind and the world of Peter, from the time he was a little boy, he would have had imaginative thoughts, prayers and hopes for one day God delivering the Jewish people out of the squishing and the oppression of the Roman Empire. And how's that going to happen? In Peter's mind, the only way he thought it was going to happen, because in the Old Testament, the main way that God would do these sort of things was through conquering. Think of Joshua and his conquests. Think David and his battles. So he has in his mind Psalm 2. We read Psalm 2 last week, and it says, there's going to be coming a king who is the son of God. And this king, son of God, he will crush the nations. So that's what these disciples are anticipating. A conquering king. He got the right answer about the who. You are the king. He got the wrong answer about the what and the how. What will this king be like? How will his kingdom be run? That's what our passage is explaining. Jesus is the king, correct, Peter, but you must know that I am a suffering king, a king who must be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, either he would have thought when he heard the third day raised that he's just thinking about the grand resurrection at some point in human history and not a specific individual resurrection of Jesus' human body. You need to realize that there is no concept in human history for a single person rising up in the middle of human history, especially for Jewish men like Peter. Does not exist. If you are sitting here and you're thinking, I think it's kind of hard to believe that a human being would rise again from the dead in the middle of human history. You are not alone and neither was that a common thought in Peter's mind. When he hears that on the third day he would be raised, the best guess is that he's thinking, oh, you just mean that some point at some period of time there'll be a big resurrection. Of course, all Jews believe that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He means on the third day he would be raised. Individually, in the middle of human history, something would break through the pattern of death and the grave winning again and again with no hope of a of a different story until Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. So Peter takes Jesus aside. Can't you just imagine the scene, like Jesus and the disciples? And he's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. If you're going to be a conquering king, you're not going to be able to defeat many people or win many battles if you're dead. <laughs> come on, Jesus, come on, let's, let's go over here. I've got a little thing we need to talk about. That's not going to happen. The language here is so strong. It's God forbid. It is this will never be. And so they're having this little powwow between Jesus and Peter. And, and he's kind of pulling him aside and saying, Jesus, this is not going to happen like this. There's no way. And that's when Jesus responds, 
get behind me. Not, get out of my way, Peter. It's the same language when Jesus first called Peter. Do you know what, what Jesus said when he first called Peter? Follow me. He's saying, Peter, <clears throat> do you remember how this whole relationship started, you and me? It was you following me. Right now, you're trying to take the lead and tell me what kind of king I'm going to be and how that kingdom is going to look? No. You're following me. You're going to get behind me. In fact, if you don't get behind me and you're going to stand in front of me, then you would be to me the same as Satan was. In fact, the language is so similar to the idea and the concept in chapter 4 where Satan is tempting with all of the kingdoms of this world, so Peter is manifesting the very spirit and words of Satan as he stands in front of Jesus and says, no, no, that's not the way it's going to be. And so he says, if you want to be in front of me, then you are basically a tripping block that's going to trip me over from God's will. That's what you are. Not the rock that the church will be built on, but rather the Satan that we need to step over unless we were to disobey God. I mean, could you imagine a bigger contrast? I just tried to rack my brain of something in history or in my own personal life, and nothing kind of came to it. But, like, imagine a scenario where you are having the best day of your life, and then, like, the worst moment follows right afterwards. At least not one of them, you know? Like, he's got to be on cloud nine. You're right. Blessed are you. Satan. And the explanation given by Jesus is incredibly insightful. Look at the end of verse 23. For, why is he like Satan? Why is he an adversary and a stumbling block? Because he is setting his mind on the things of man. He is thinking in worldly terms, in worldly ways. Wasn't it helpful to be reminded in Isaiah 55 when Karen came up here and read, God's ways are not man's ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways and his thoughts far above our thoughts. It's like trying to trim your beard or cut your hair in the mirror. It is so opposite and different. It is upside down. Every part of God's kingdom, the way, the nature, the what, the how, is so far beyond what you and I could think or imagine what God would do in the world. And so he tells Peter, this is the reason why you are setting your mind on things of the world, things of man, and not on the things of God. It is God's will for Jesus to suffer and die. Then as we continue, Jesus then speaks to his disciples. And so now everybody's back together again. Peter has been appropriately rebuked. And he tells all of them, now, if any of you want to follow me, any of you want to come after me, again, it's the same language of following Jesus, the call to discipleship. Deny yourself and take up your cross and then follow me. Now, that seems quite redundant, which is why denying and taking up the cross explain what it means to follow, because read it this way. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, Denying 
and cross-taking is what is meant for following. And this is so core to our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. We must make sure, again, we understand it in its original context. Crosses were not decorations. They were not on religious buildings. They weren't necklaces that you wore. Nobody would have had cross tattoos. Nobody would have had them on books. There was no sense to which you would use a cross in a positive sense. It was the form of execution by the Roman government. I need you to imagine being a first century person like Peter or any of these other disciples, and you're walking along with Jesus into a town, and it's overrun and ruled by the Roman government. And to display and to show everybody the rule of the Romans, you would have dead people hanging on crosses as you enter into the city, one after another after another. It was a sign of brutal torture and fierce domination. Let's make sure we're not reading this cross, take up your cross as some sort of light, little, oh yeah, bear your burdens. It meant death in the worst possible way. In fact, think about it in this manner. There is no Mel Gibson description of the brutality of the cross anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. All they can bring themselves to say is, and then he was crucified. You know why? Number one, everybody knows what it means to be crucified. Everybody has seen in that sense the Mel Gibson passion of the Christ, but not in a movie as if it was somehow distant from us and we're safely eating our popcorn in a movie theater. No, no, they have seen it as they've walked along the streets and they've seen people dying of what is the word? Uh, losing your breath. <laughs> um, because they're hanging on the cross and they can't breathe anymore. Th- this is real. And as this symbol of the cross is before them, not just the one cross that Jesus would bear, but the crosses all around them, he says, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Why would you do that? Like, if you understand that that's what a cross means, which they surely would have known, it's us that has the issue of not really grasping what it means. Why would you do that? And look at the reasons Jesus gives. Four, if you would try and save your life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Four, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's a repeated layering of arguments for, or you could use the word because in English. Why should I do that? Why should I take up my cross and follow you, Jesus? Because. Let me tell you why. Now again, picture in your mind that all you've ever thought is that the king is going to come. So now they've identified who that king is, and they're expecting him to be a conquering king, an overthrowing military leader. He's saying, if you do not follow me, then you're going to go into battle with swords against the Romans, and you're going to die. 
take it in its most simple, clear, straightforward context first. Jesus is giving them a new way to be the nation of Israel and the people of God. A new way to be the, the how and the what of following Jesus and living in his kingdom. Their mind would have been swords, spears, fighting, force. And Jesus is trying to tell them with these words, if you do that, you will die. By trying to save your life, meaning by fighting for your life, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose this battle. That's his point. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. Why? Because of the way he concludes this section with the the greatest and the final explanation is this language of the Son of Man coming. First, he talks about the angels of glory with his Father in heaven, and then lastly in verse 28, that some will not taste death, meaning in this generation you will be alive when you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And a lot of people struggle with that. This is the only part of the text I think that is a little bit confusing. The rest of it I think is one of those like, Are we going to obey this word, even though it's hard word? But this last part of the text has tripped people up and made them confused. What does it mean that they won't taste death? Jesus hasn't returned yet, and they're already dead. More than likely, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. The language son of man is a direct quote from Daniel 7. The whole idea of angels and vindication is that there will be one who is like a son of man. So, You might remember this from previous teachings. Son of man means son of Adam. The new Adam, a new representative of humanity will come and in the Daniel 7 vision, he will defeat all of the kingdoms who have been conquering over the Jewish people. That's the vision in Daniel 7. And he's saying that you're going to see the victory of the son of man in your own lifetime. That's the shorthand summary of what Jesus is saying here. Why should I give up my life to follow you, Jesus, even if I know it might mean take up my cross and die. Why should I do that? Because you're going to see through that death victory. And in fact, many of you are going to see that victory before you even die yourself. So what could that possibly be a reference to? The establishing of God's rule and reign in his kingdom already now before they even died? Like this happened already? Yes. That's why they have not died and still have seen the victorious king. He won. In other words, it's the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. He is alluding to the point he made earlier in our text. I will die. I will be killed, but then I will be raised. If you choose to go against Jesus's thoughts and ways, and you go your own way, you're going to be killed by Romans. You're going to die. And by rejecting Jesus, the hope of your resurrection is not looking good. But choose the way of Jesus, and you will die. But there will be vindication, there will be resurrection. For in fact, the king who already did die on a cross 2,000 years ago was raised three days later, and he now still reigns as the king, the Lord of lords. So that's the main reason why the followers of Jesus, right there in its first century context, should follow him. The what and the how is self-denial and death, suffering, pain, trials, difficulties. Who would sign up for that? Only people who know that it will be through those things 
that both in this life and the life to come, it will lead to greater victory. To underscore this point, I want to make sure it's clear to all of us that Jesus does not just mean bear your little burdens every day. And this is part of what I mean by the the Christianese kind of nomenclature language of like, oh, I got to bear my cross. Listen to the rundown of Christian tradition and history of what happened to the very men who heard these words. James, martyred and beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod. Matthew, the one who we believe was helping put together these very words. Killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark, the one who we believe put together, uh, or one, Mark, one of Jesus' disciples, was dragged through the streets of Alexandria before he died. Luke was hung in Greece. Thomas was speared to death in India. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And John was dipped alive in boiling oil and left to die on a rock of the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean. This is what I mean. Don't read these words and think that it just means Jesus provides a way of just how to deal with everyday burdens. He's first and foremost talking about literally dying. So, application for us. What is the application for our taking up our cross and denying ourselves to follow Jesus? I don't think we should try and like skirt around it or make it soft. Some of us will die. Literally be killed for following Jesus and that be the reason why we die. It could be people in this room, but some of us, meaning Christians, the rock to which Jesus will build his church, the people that confess Jesus is the Christ, they will be an unstoppable force because not even death can slow them down. That sounds really glorious last week until you get to this week, doesn't it? Oh, wait, like literally we might die? Yeah, but if death is defeated, you're not losing, you're gaining. That's what the whole book of Philippians is telling us. To die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is better by far. It sounds so backwards. It sounds so weird. It's like being in the mirror and trying to trim and cut your hair. But it's the right way to go. Because it's the ultimate reality of the king who reigns. So, let's make sure we don't miss that first and foremost, the application is Christians will die for following Jesus. And this is incredibly worth it. I love the the message, if you've never heard it, in 2000, John Piper gives a message to like 100,000 college students in this outdoor lawn in Texas. If you've ever heard of the Passion Conferences, this is one of the very first Passion Conferences, and he looks out at 100,000 some college students, and he just basically tells them, Your dreams and ambitions stink. You're a bunch of college students with your whole life ahead of you, and you've got small dreams and ambitions. And then he tells them a story of two young ladies, or not two young ladies, two older ladies in their 80s that went out onto the mission field. And while they were on the mission field, the truck they were driving on caravined off of the side, and they blew up in their car and died on the spot doing missions work for Jesus. And he looks at all those students, and in only the John Piper way that he could, he's like, is that a tragedy? And then as he famously has said and written since then, no, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Americans selling themselves out for the American dream, collecting seashells in their retirement, when we've got ladies in their 80s going into the hard places of the mission field and dying as they go off of a ravine. 
That's not a tragedy. A tragedy is people who sell themselves short of the glory of Jesus Christ and really buying in that if Jesus came to suffer, die, be raised, and ascend to heaven, if that's true, and that's what we're saying, that's the core of what it means to be a Christian. If you're here today, a guest or a visitor, welcome. This might sound strange, but this is actually what it means to be a Christian. Jesus defeated death. How can we go around and act like that doesn't exist? That's denying the who by not matching the who with the what. They're all interconnected. I think that's why Matthew arranged these stories the way he did. So then I do want us to really grasp that there will be some of us who go on the mission field or everyday life, and we will live as Christians and we will die. Do you guys know who Jim Elliot is? If not, Google search Jim Elliot, read the books, listen to the podcasts. Jim Elliot was a missionary that was sent out into the mission field. He got to know a tribal people, and eventually they turned on him and speared him to death. And the reason I bring him up is not just because he's another example of just another person that has gone to follow Jesus to make his name known where he's not known, but because he has the most amazing quote about his entire life. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could never earn. And Jim Elliot's whole life demonstrates somebody who dies for Jesus. And praise God, just as it has happened so many times, it was through his death that the whole village, not I don't necessarily know if it's every single one, but the majority of the village and the very people who killed Jim Elliot came to faith in Jesus. It's an amazing story of how God uses the ways of suffering and of death and martyrdom to radically flip upside down the world. People are not going to be impressed with your affluence and that you prayed and then God gave you a fancy car or a nice job. Like, that's not going to impress people. They're going to be impressed when you're walking through the deepest, darkest possible pain and you say, Christ is enough. When you say the resurrection from the dead is my hope and it's the only hope I got because everything in this world has been lost on me. That's when people notice, whoa, this is different. That's not like everybody else. And the great need of us in here in America is to realize that the call of discipleship is not any less than the call that was given here. Now I say all that, and I want to make it clear that I know that for most of us, our fate, more than likely, and I hope, is not that we die for Jesus. It is not some badge that we want to go around and try and earn, as if like, well, I heard Pastor Phil's message, and it was, let's all go die for Jesus. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's just the inevitable reality if you want to follow him. It continues to happen all the time. And I don't think is slowing down by any stretch. I think statistics say that because there's more Christians, then therefore there are more martyrs than there ever has been in any history of the church. People are still being killed for Christ. However, since that is not most of us in this room, we do need to know that the same attitude and mindset that says, I will go and follow Christ even though I die, is the same mindset you need to live in the everyday. So we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like in the ordinary spaces? Not the grandiose Jim Elliot stories, although they're great and inspiring and very helpful. What about dealing with going to school, 
working your everyday job, taking care of your finances, raising children, loving your spouse, being a faithful citizen here in this community and loving our neighbors as ourselves. If it doesn't reach on that level, there is no chance that you're going to be ready for the biggest level if you were to ever stand before the opportunity to put your life on the line and die for Jesus. Why would that ever be on the horizon if you can't even do it in the smallest of ways now? So I want us to be examining things like, husbands, in what ways do you deny yourself and sacrifice some of your ambitions for the sake of helping care for your young children? Since there's plenty of them around in this congregation, I'm certain that there are families and moms and wives that are in need of help. What sort of ambitions are you settling for instead of the, fam- the ambition of denying yourself and gaining a whole new life through self-sacrifice? How many of us have bought on to the American dreams and therefore we have not really embraced the way of Jesus? We're just kind of going with the same flow instead of realizing this is a backwards cut. You're going to mess up your haircut if you keep doing it the same way, right? In the mirror. It has to go backwards in order to cut straight and right. And so we need to think through all kinds of matters in our lives and figure in the ordinary, everyday, small decisions. Denying ourselves the comforts and little pleasures that are vying for our attention. And I want to say that to you all in this church, it is encouraging to find people that make sacrifices on a regular basis. The words here in Jesus are hard and they're intense, and I think they're meant to be. I think they're especially hard for people who are living their lives in ease and comfort and trying to make everything consumeristically catering around their own personal preferences. Like, we need to hear these words. This is not the way Jesus has called us. And it's not because that's going to steal from us. It's because it's going to give us life. That's the whole point of this text. Truly, you will have life. You will gain it. So let's make it our ambition and goal to continue to spur each other on to not try and have both. Let's not have both. Don't say on the one hand, well, I want to be really generous but I also still really like to be rich. I really want to grow in my character, but please, no trials, no suffering, no difficulties. We can't speak out of both sides of our mouth and say that I want humility, but I don't ever want to experience humiliation. I want to be a patient person, but don't make me wait. I want kindness. But please, remove all people that are agitating me. Never put them in my presence. But I want to be a kind person. And don't ever say, I want the life of Jesus, but I don't want to take up his cross. To say that you're a citizen of the kingdom is to say that you get not just the who, but the what and the how. The text that we've read before us is broken into two little paragraphs. Here's a simple way to remember it. Jesus' cross and our cross. He must suffer, and he did. Our cross. We, too, 
must take up our cross, deny ourselves, forego pleasures, and even our very lives. But praise God that Jesus is the kind of God who does not ask us to do something that he's not already done first. Jesus' cross, and then our cross. The order of how you think through those two makes all the difference for your ability to deny yourselves in the little momentary moments of your day and in the big decisions to say, I'm going to go overseas and try and reach people that are opposed to Christianity and put my life on the line. Jesus' cross, and then our cross. If I want the life of Jesus, then I want the life of the cross. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for sending your son Jesus into the world to rescue sinners who are in need of salvation. We thank you and praise you now that Jesus looked at death, he embraced it, he died, he suffered many things. And then he rose again victoriously, triumphantly, and he now reigns as alive and risen and well. We want to ask, God, that in your work of the Holy Spirit, you would inspire and encourage and motivate us on the basis of what God already has done for us. I pray that we would remember that who we are is on the basis of who he is and what has already been accomplished on our behalf. So I ask, Father, that there would be no sense of passionate, zealous, cross-denying lifestyles that is absent from the cross of Jesus. May the one inform the other. May the command to go and die be fueled by the death that already happened in Christ. And I ask God that we would be people who do not look at these texts and go through Christian rituals and habits and look at them lightly and flippantly. Convict us where we need to be convicted, God. Open our eyes to the ways that we are so selling ourselves short to the wonderful world of joy even in the midst of pain and suffering. I pray, God, that we would see it as a gift, as Philippians 1 says. It has been granted to you to suffer. Help us to see the gift of suffering. I pray, God, that we would see that Christ is that ultimate gift, and we would treasure him with all of our hearts. In his name, amen.